Well, amen. Isn't the gospel story beautiful? Yes. <laughs> it is. How are y'all doing today? Good. I always feel like the people that come to church the Sunday after Christmas are this like elite class of Christians. So welcome here today. I'm going to go and dismiss the kids to their time of study. Um, you know, I feel like you've got like the Easter only Christians and like the Sunday after Christmas Christians. So I'm trying to say you're going to make it to heaven. So congratulations. 50 God points for all of you. Um, so something about myself is I like kombuchas, which are these probiotic drinks that have all these um, microscopic microbes swimming in them. And um, the other, it's kind of part of my ongoing attempt at becoming like a cool hipster pastor. Um, not having any social media is killing me, so i got to compensate where I can. And uh, that's kombuchas for me. So they're supposed to be good for your gut. And uh, have these like health benefits and, and things like that. And I usually do feel better after, after drinking one. The other day I was drinking a, a kombucha and um, it boasted this staggering fact that there were two billion microbes swimming in my drink. And I thought, I kind of wish I didn't know that. Um, but, uh, you know, the truth is, is I don't, you know, I don't really care how many of these uh, little microbes are swimming in my drink. The, the real point of why I drink it is I need to know that it just makes me feel better. And if that's the case, then that's cool, if it's beneficial. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, um, daily faith is that way. Prayer is that way. Worship is that way. Communing with the Spirit, uh, the, f- the fellowship of the Spirit, the fellowship of the saints is that way. I don't always know how it works, um, and I don't always see dramatic change uh, the second I, I reach out in some small, ordinary way like that. Uh, but over time, I do. And I also see dramatic change when I stop believing, praying, worshiping, fellowshipping with the Spirit and the people of God. Um, God, who is extraordinary, is often found in the ordinary. And that's often how Jesus is visiting you. Mostly how Jesus is visiting you. Our text today, I think, points to that. So turn with me to Mark 6. I'm going to read it for us, and I think Griff's going to turn the slides for us. Mark chapter 6, 1 through 6 says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath day he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people, and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Let me pray for us. God, I ask that you would speak to us, Lord, in this time. God, I ask that you would open our hearts, open our eyes to see the ways that you're moving all the time in our lives, Lord, through the very ordinary ways that you come to us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, In this text, Jesus goes to his hometown, and he preaches in the synagogue that day. 
uh, which isn't abnormal for Jesus. We find from Luke that it was his weekly custom to go to the synagogue. Jesus was a church-going man. And he uh, came, but this time's a little different because he came back to his hometown, the people he grew up with. Jesus, we have, we have the story of Jesus as a boy, right? You may remember, where he goes to the temple and he amazes the scribes and the teachers of the law with his wisdom. He goes back to Nazareth, and in Luke 2, it says that he continued to grow in wisdom. Um, so wisdom something he had even from um, his youth. But in this story, uh, we have to note that in Mark 6, the fact that the people of his hometown are astonished, I mean blown away at the wisdom of the carpenter and the power of the carpenter uh, shows that Jesus had to have lived a very ordinary life for decades in Nazareth. Apparently, he wasn't the village guru that everybody went to, right? He wasn't the local miracle man that everybody went to in Nazareth for decades. He was just the carpenter. And that's why they're so blown away at this scene. Um, Jesus started his public ministry when he, people began to see who he was. His power and wisdom was on display at age 30. At age 30 and at age 33, he was killed. And um, so I turned 33 this year. And I remember it was either on my birthday or um, the week of my birthday looking over at Jordan and just kind of saying, it's crazy. Jesus, Jesus' ministry had already peaked when he was younger than me. <laughs> and he was going to die this year. I mean, it's just, I don't know if any of y'all had that moment when you entered your early 30s of just kind of how young Jesus was. Did any of y'all have that moment when you entered your early 30s? Um, I mean, of course, he was the eternal son of God. <laughs> but as a man, I mean, he was pretty young, pretty young. And he's come back to his hometown this, this local kid, and um, he's basically come back as the talk of the entire country. So we find this, uh, this context here in, in Mark 3, 7 and 8, says that Jesus withdrew uh, with his disciples to the sea, and a great cloud, crowd followed him from Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and Edome, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So this, is, this verse is basically shorthand for the entire country of Israel and even beyond Israel was coming to see Jesus. So he's kind of this like national phenomenon. And some of the astonishment that the people in this tiny village of Nazareth are feeling is that in some bizarre turn of events, the guy who built my ox cart has come back as a religious superstar. And they're not, sure, they're not sure what to make of it, right? I mean, rightly so. Um, so Nazareth is this tiny little village of approximately 150 to 200 people. That's how many people live there in Nazareth. Um, Nazareth means offshoot. Um, presumably uh, offshoot of the high king of Israel, David, which is a reference to Isaiah chapter 11, where it says that an offshoot will come from the stump of Jesse, um, from the stump of the hacked-down dynasty of King David. Um, and so a lot of people suppose that uh, Nazareth was actually founded by a clan of Jews who were descendants of David. Uh, they came to Nazareth, and with the expectation of the offshoot of David coming, they named their town Offshoot, 
And that's entirely likely because, according to verse 4, many of the people in this village are Jesus' relatives. So half the people in this village might be descendants of David who, um, who founded this town. Um, and let me read verse 11 for us. Uh, sorry, Isaiah 11 for us. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So this is the image, right, of a, of a stump, um, which you can even see how ancient people would have seen um, like a big stump with a, a tiny little spark of life, a shoot coming from it as an image of hope, um, coming from what was once uh, this exalted grand thing, like a, a glorious tree um, that's been hacked down. And that's the, that's the dynasty of David that was so great and tall and exalted and has been cut down, which happened historically by the Babylonians. Um, but there was this prophecy that from that destroyed dynasty would come a shoot. Um, and that hope was alive in the hearts of the Jews, so much so that the, the clan that founded Nazareth named their town offshoot in hopes of this coming offshoot. And there's this interesting interplay between Isaiah 11 and, and Mark 6, right? So uh, this coming offshoot is going to have a spirit of wisdom on him. And then in Mark 6, one of the questions they ask in the synagogue that day is, what is this wisdom given to him? And it says the spirit of might is going to rest on this offshoot. And um, they ask, how are such mighty works done by his hands? And so there's this prophetic interplay happening here that of all people, maybe the people living in offshoot should recognize the offshoot when he comes. And even their own questions betray their failure to identify him when they should. Um, it's tragic in many ways. Um, so when we look at this story, um, there's some things, that, there's some questions that matter deeply that come out of the story. You know, some, some things really matter and some things really don't. So um, this, this year, we managed to wait until, like, we, Jordan and I practiced enough restraint to wait until late November to watch Elf, um, which is pretty good for us. And um, so like, I like that scene in Elf where, you know, Buddy is, like, right, typing out his uh, farewell on the exosketch. You remember the scene? He's like, I'm sorry I ruined your lives and crammed 11 cookies in the VCR. Um, you know, some things really matter, like ruining someone's life, and some things don't by comparison. You know, the question, who is Jesus of Nazareth, really matters. Now, someone may say that question doesn't matter, but if that's how they feel about it, that means they've already answered the question, right? Um, they've already answered that he's just an ancient carpenter from a town of Nazareth. Um, the question, where did he get these things, really matters. What is this wisdom given to him matters. How is he able to do these mighty works by his hands? Um, and, and notice, if you will, um, the where, what, how of those questions, right? Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? And if they followed the, the where, what, how of those questions, it would have led them straight to a revelation of the Trinity. <laughs> they, really, right? Where did he get these things? Well, he got them from 
the heavenly father who sent the son to the earth. What is this wisdom? It's divine wisdom. He's God. How is he able to do these mighty works? By God the Holy Spirit. That's where it would have led them to those questions. And they start out so good with these questions, right? Where did he get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? Um, how are these mighty works done by his hands? But isn't this the carpenter? The son of Mary? The, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And Mark adds, and they took offense at him. They took offense at him. Um, the key idea, in my mind, in this story, is amazement. Um, so the story begins, right, with the people being amazed at Jesus. Many who heard him were astonished at him. And the story ends with Jesus marveling, being amazed at their unbelief. And those two statements of amazement really bookend this story. So if you think about the Gospels, all throughout the Gospels, um, people are amazed at Jesus, right? The crowds are amazed at his power. They're, the, he preaches with, with wisdom, not like the scribes, um, and with authority. And they're constantly amazed, astounded, and marveling at Jesus. There's only two times that Jesus marvels at us. Do you know those two times? Well, he marvels at the faith of the centurion in Matthew chapter 8, and he marvels at the unbelief in his hometown of Nazareth. There's only two times that Jesus marvels at us, and both times it has to do with faith. It has to do with the presence of faith or the absence of faith. That's almost the only thing that causes God to be amazed, at least according to the Gospels. The only time Jesus ever marvels is at the presence of faith or the absence of faith. So they, they heard Jesus that day in the synagogue, um, and they were initially filled with wonder and astonishment over him. What is this wisdom? How, where did he get these things? Um, how does he have this power? And then familiar, familiarity bred contempt, as they say, and basically it turned more into, it's just Jesus. I mean, we all grew up with Jesus. Let me, ask, let me ask you guys, what does that sound like to you? I mean, to me, it sounds like Southern Christianity, right? Um, we're a lot like Nazareth as, as, a, as a culture, as a people. Um, you know, and maybe that was you. Maybe initially your heart was alive with fascination and wonder over the kingdom of God over the gospel, over the person of Christ. But now it's more like, it's just Jesus. I mean, we all grew up with Jesus. Have you seen the new Star Wars movie yet? Right? Like, that's, it's often how it, how it comes. And we lose, we've, oftentimes we lose that initial wonder that we began with. Um, because if you think about these series of questions, I know I've done them a lot, but let me, let me do it again. They, they say, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How is he able to do these mighty works by his hands? But isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And his sisters are here with us, and they took offense at him, the text says. Jesus says in the next verse, A prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. 
So they end with offense rather than honor, which Jesus is seeking. Um, that's how they end. Now questions, spiritual questions, like we find in this story, aren't bad. Um, your friends in your children, or maybe it's you here today, you need to be, if it's this question on your heart, like is Christianity true or who is Jesus really, you need to be allowed to ask those questions. The church needs to be a safe place if someone's experiencing doubts. We need to be able to ask questions. Is there more to this person? Is he more than a carpenter? Um, I think that has to be okay. In fact, when I talk to millennials who've left the church, most of the time, they say that one of the reasons they left the church is because they didn't feel like the church was a safe place to experience doubts or ask questions. Um, so that needs to, to be allowed. Um, but my, here's, in that spirit, here's a question I have. Why didn't their set of questions in the synagogue that day not go more like this? Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And his sisters are still here with us. And Mark adds, and they worshipped him. And they honored him. I mean, think about it. Why couldn't the exact same set of questions not ended in honor instead of offense? Not ended in worship instead of unbelief? Why? I mean, they started out so good, right? They're, they seemed to initially be moving towards Jesus and faith until they asked the question, but isn't this the carpenter? And suddenly they began walking away from him. And the reason is it's because they were living, apparently, with a presupposition that God isn't found in the ordinary. I'm just going to let that sit for a second. You know, our questions have a trajectory based on our desires and based on what we think the answer should be. And the, the people of Nazareth had an answer in mind of what they thought the Messiah should be. And that answer didn't include the guy who made my kitchen table. Right? I mean, Jesus had spent the last 30 years building furniture and beds, patching holes in boats that would be sent back out to the Sea of Galilee, fixing what could be fixed, um, maybe some stonework here and there. He was the equivalent of what we call, you know, a modern um, handyman. That's who Jesus had, that's all the Jesus they'd ever known. Um, so they had a presupposition that the Messiah would be somebody of noble birth, right? Someone dignified, somebody who would be an obvious choice that wouldn't surprise anybody at all. That would obviously be the Messiah. And that belief kept them from believing in Jesus. That belief kept the people living in the town of offshoot from recognizing the offshoot. And they lost their initial wonder that they began with over his wisdom, over his power. And maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. Um, you know, and, and whatever we might say spiritual maturity is, it counts for nothing if we've lost our ability to wander over the king. I mean, it doesn't even really matter how many decades you've been a Christ follower if you've lost your sense of marvel over Jesus, over the gospel, over who God is. I want to be fascinated with God. 
want to be gripped with the beauty of God, the glory of God. Because so much of the time, that sustains my faith. It's as we can wonder over the king, marvel over his glory, that that fuels our faith. And so often, when we lose or let go of our sense of wonder over the king, our faith begins to wither. Sadly, I saw that happen one time. Um, a, a friend of mine uh, from seminary, he uh, was an atheist uh, going into college. He came into college and became a, a believer and kind of immediately just thrust himself into um, devotional practices of prayer and worship, meditating on the scripture, communing with God. Um, to me, a model of just someone who's pursuing the presence of the Lord and, and the presence of God and, and what he would have then called spiritual practices. So then he came to seminary. We were at Beeson together, and he uh, kind of on his way out of seminary began questioning the, the truth claims of Christianity and ultimately uh, walked away from his faith in Christ. And um, he told me that like, when he began his search for truth, he, made, he just made this decision um, to divorce himself from, from prayer and worship and spiritual practices, and meditation, basically the things that sustain our wonder over God. And he said, um, I'm going to divorce myself from all those things, and if God's real, then God's just going to have to be big enough to prove himself to me as I go on this um, intellectual journey for truth. And um, he went on that journey and lost his faith. And I remember looking at my friend and saying, man, there was never any God at the end of that road. You were never going to find God at the end of that road. God's not, although God gave us our intellect and our, our ability to reason, God is, isn't impressed at our intellect. <laughs> There's only one thing that causes God to be amazed, and it's when people move towards him in faith or move away from him in unbelief. That's it. Um, that's about it. When I read a passage like this, though, um, I mostly think about my own unbelief. <laughs> and I wonder, like, man, how many times has Jesus marveled over my unbelief? Because um, the truth is, is I am Nazareth. But I'm also the guy from Mark 9, a few chapters later, who cried out to Jesus, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And he does. I mean, Jesus comes to me so faithful to come to me and, and nourish my faith and, and declare his beauty to me again. And it sustains my, my, my love, my wonder, my marvel over who he is. That's what Jesus does. As we allow ourselves to see the beauty of the king. Um, that's, that's how faith comes to me. I, I love this quote by Karl Barth, the 20th century theologian, who said, Faith is a history. New every morning. It's not a state or an attribute. So we tend to think of, of faith as its attribute. Like some people got it, some people don't. And hopefully you got it because a lot's riding on this thing. Um, and I don't think that's really quite how faith works. Like it's this attribute that some people have a capacity for and other people are too smart for. <laughs> Which is basically what a lot of people are saying these days. It's not an attribute. Um, it's also not a state, necessarily. It can't just be reduced to this thing I had um, last week and was kind of waning on Thursday, but I'm feeling an uptick in faith right now. Um, I think there's an aspect of how faith is like that. We feel surges and it wanes at times. 
But mostly, I like to think of faith as a history, like Bart says here, as a lifestyle. Um, a lifestyle, a history that I have with God, and a history that I have as a part of the people of God that's gone on now for thousands of years. So that's what I'm partaking in, as I yoke myself to this God, to the beauty of the King, to this covenant people, and as he yokes himself to me. Jesus comes to his hometown looking for faith. The same way he comes to you and me, looking for faith. And his activity in your life is related to, in some way, the faith in your life. Now, um, don't worry, I'm not in any danger of becoming a word of faith preacher. Like, I'm in no danger of becoming a word of faith preacher. Um, But... I have to take this passage seriously at the same time, right? What does it say? Well, it says, And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Um, So I don't think that faith has this kind of like purchasing power with God. Um, Like, our faith buys God's activity in our lives. Um, we don't have this like transactional relationship with God. I don't think that's how faith works. But I do think that Jesus marvels at faith. I do think that faith pleases God, as Hebrews 11 says. I, I think that when you reach out to God with this, the, even this small faith, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, he rushes to you and he, he works on your behalf. I think God is moved by faith. He's drawn to faith. It's, it's, it's something we can offer him that catches his eye, according to the Gospels. And he's drawn to it. Um, actually, uh, Dave Malik, I was asking him, about, Dave Malik's our resident Markin scholar, just so you know. Um, he's doing a dissertation on the Gospel of Mark. And so if you have any questions about Mark, ask him. I really have no business preaching on Mark today. Um, but I did, I did ask uh, Dave uh, kind of about this passage. And, and he pointed out, you know, um, in a PowerPoint he sent me on like half of Mark, which is awesome, um, that uh, it might be that people just didn't bring their sick to Jesus, right? There wasn't enough faith in the town to even bring their sick to Jesus, and only a few people had faith enough to do that, and those are the people that got healed. Um, And I think that's probably the kind of thing going on here. It's not that Jesus was inept by any means. It's just that people weren't coming to him for that. Um, There's a story that Tim Keller shares about a play that that was on Broadway a number of years ago, and while the play was in its rehearsal stage, um, it was just a disaster. Nothing was going well. It wasn't gelling. And everyone knew it was a disaster. Um, the whole cast did. And the director said, like, man, is this kind of thought to himself, like, is this play even worth saving? And um, he kind of hit a, hit a moment realized the, the woman that I've got in the lead role just doesn't have the ability to pull, to pull off this role. So he made a split-second decision and switched the actress in the lead role with the woman in the supporting role and moved the woman in the supporting role to the lead role. And almost immediately, it was electric. And everything just started uh, flowing, and everyone knew this was going to be instant success. And uh, the, whole, the whole cast was like, why didn't we do this sooner? Even the woman who was in um, the lead role, just, her mouth was shut. She couldn't object because she realized, like, I, didn't, I wasn't suited for that role. 
Um, so it went, it went to Broadway, and it was this, this raging success. And um, Tim Keller says that that play is a metaphor. The Bible says that play is a, a metaphor for both all of creation and all of human history and your individual lives. That nothing will be right in the world, in creation, in human history, in your relationships, in your value system, the way you process the world, the things you pursue. Nothing will be made right until we realize our basic problem, our fundamental problem, which is that you move through life as the lead in the role of your own theater of life. Um, and, and Tim Keller, I think, rightly points out that none of us are going to fully realize that until Judgment Day. Um, that we all go through life, you included, by the way, sorry. Um, we all go through life having uh, cast ourselves in the lead role in the drama of our own life. And we pursue and we uh, see all of life through that lens. But you're at the center and everything is transpiring around you as you move through this life. Um, and that it's not until uh, Jesus takes the lead that things are truly set to rights. Doesn't mean everything works out perfectly, that's a little caveat, but things come um, to the right place. Um, and, and I think Tim Keller's right, that I don't think that really happens in this life. I think that at, on the day of the Lord, we will, it will click for all of us, why, why did I keep casting myself in the lead role when that was a role I was not born to play? I was never born to play that role. And I, but I do think that we can get glimpses of that now. I do think that you and I can get glimpses in seasons and realize, okay, please get Jesus. You're in the lead. Let me stop viewing my life at me at the center and stop recasting myself in that place. And then we, we'll do it again. We'll do it again. And then we repent and we put him back in that place. And I think in many ways that's what Jesus is offering, his hometown at Nazareth, right? I mean, He's coming as the namesake of their town, like the very hope of the world, the Davidic dynasty reborn, calling them to see their own lives in this tiny village in perspective that Jesus is the lead role, the, the hinge point of history itself coming to them, giving them a chance to see their own lives, that all of them are always the supporting cast and will only ever be the supporting cast in their lives. He's offering them a chance to see it. And I think the reason they push back and we push back is we don't want a simple life of loving and serving. That just sounds kind of boring. <laughs> we don't want an ordinary life. Um, we, want, we want our lives to be epic. We want to be the lead. Um, you know, so I'll, um, sometimes I'll make the, like, sermon bumper videos or like promo videos that we'll show here at Fullness. Um, and when I do that, I'll go to like a, a Christian like website and I'll like kind of scroll looking for uh, B-roll of like different like footage from different scenes. And um, some of it's good and I try to get the good stuff. Most of it's unbelievably cheesy, guys. Oh my gosh. Um, I can't even go there. It's just unbelievably cheesy. So it's either like unbelievably cheesy or on the other side, it's like super epic. I mean, like, you know, someone 
He's just scaled the top of a mountain. He's like arms thrust back. The, you know, the sun's silhouetting his body with his back shot and his hair's blowing in the wind. Um, and like clearly it's supposed to be like freedom or something. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and, or like the other day I was looking at this scene and it was like this woman um, who was just like gracefully walking through a wheat field with like her hands brushing like the top of the wheat. And I was like, oh, this is perfect because people at Fullness are always walking through wheat fields. I can totally like, this is, this is life. Um, you know, and I, I think the, the truth is like, for me, when I, when I was moving from like high school and college into uh, more into, I guess, adulthood, um, one of the challenges for me was like swallowing this pill that tasted really bad that maybe Christianity is not like the epic lifestyle I thought it was going to be. Like that was really like hard for me because um, I was convinced like this is the most epic lifestyle. I'm literally living in an action movie now that I'm a Christian. Um, and so, for example, I remember going to these conferences um, uh, up in Kansas City uh, when I was growing up, and they were incredible. God really moved and really touched me and set my life um, on a trajectory for him at those conferences. Um, and one of the things I would do when I went to these conferences is I would go to these uh, prophetic ministry uh, teams. And basically what that would be is I, you, know, you sit there with like three or four people, and they pray, ask God for a word for you, and if they feel something, they share with you. And it was always really good. Um, and I remember one year I got this prophetic word. This person looked at me and said, I see this, this image of you preaching to a stadium full of people. I thought, oh, that's definitely God. <laughs> and I said, thank you. Thank you for that word, brother. So I, I came back next year, and um, I went to the prophetic ministry teams and this new team, this, this other person said, I just feel like you're going to be preaching to stadiums. Confirmation is happening. Um, so I was like living with this, like, I'm going to be a stadium preacher, preaching to stadium gatherings, and that's me. So um, a few months later, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he was like, man, I got this incredible prophetic word um, at these prophetic ministry teams. And uh, they told me that I'm going to be preaching to stadiums. I was like, dude, me too. Like, we should totally start, like, you and me, Ministries International, go on the road together. We can tag team this thing. Um, a few months after that, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he said, dude, I got this crazy prophetic word. Um, and they told me that I was going to be preaching to stadiums. And at that point, you too, huh? I, I kind of started doing the math, like, are there going to be enough stadium gatherings for my f- friend group to preach to, like, just not sure what the calculus is on that. Um, and, and who knows, maybe someday I will preach at Legion Field and y'all all come hear me preach. Um, but if that doesn't happen, I'm totally good. I just want to say that. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe that was the Lord. I don't know. My, my, my MO at this point is that probably isn't the Lord, and that's okay. Um, I, I really don't blame these, um, these teams for wanting to give these super epic words um, to these kids. Um, and the reason I don't blame them is because we all do that, right? We all, we all want this Christianity just to be epic, to be exhilarating. Um, and sometimes it is, right? But oftentimes it's not. Uh, why? Well, because oftentimes life isn't exhilarating. And Christianity doesn't remove you from life. 
In fact, it does the opposite. It thrusts you into life, into a world of relationships and responsibilities, into a world of sin and darkness, into the world that God came building furniture, into a world, uh, into a town, into uh, relatives, into uh, a household. I mean, I got to imagine that Jesus' life didn't feel very epic after finishing a long day of patching holes in a boat. Um, Yeah, but Jesus' life got pretty epic once he started turning water into wine and healing sick people, you might say. Maybe so, but Jesus wasn't a thrill seeker. He didn't, like, start his public ministry that God called him to and he was destined for to spice up his otherwise boring life. Right? That's not what Jesus was doing. For Jesus, his whole life was the adventure, not the wild three years at the end. Jesus comes to you and me like he came to the people of his hometown of Nazareth. He comes looking for faith. He's worthy of honor. And the true church isn't Nazareth. The true church is where Jesus receives high honor. And that's what we give him here at Fullness. Amen? We give him our honor. We give him our faith. That's what we give him. And and if you belong to Jesus, then your life is to be lived to the honor of his name. To the honor of his name. Jesus has visited you and you've responded with faith. Maybe you're here today and you're still on that journey towards faith. And if that's you, um, we're so glad you're here with us. Continue asking if this uh, man from Nazareth is more than a carpenter. Now, I'm going to go invite the worship team to come on back up. Or if that's you, Caleb. You know, during this season of Advent, we've been in awe over the humility of God to come to our world and be born in a lowly manger. And we should be. We don't often talk about the humility of God who welcomed a client into his workshop, heard their request, and worked for modest wages. Wages paid to him by creatures who owe him the breath in their lungs. If that doesn't awaken wonder in you and me, I don't know what will. Can we stand? We close and worship. The team's going to lead us in a song and the, the, the words were, may we never lose our wonder. And that was kind of my heart for this morning as I was kind of praying and seeking the Lord about what to share. It's just that God would fascinate our hearts again. Amen. And, and maybe you're here today and your heart's alive with wonder. Maybe some of your wonder is faded. Um, and with that, I just want to invite the Lord to come and rekindle our wonder, our marvel over Jesus. That thing that the people in the synagogue that day started with and lost because they were determined that God isn't found in the very ordinariness of life. Certainly God's not coming to us through our carpenter, but he was. God, I just ask that you would meet with us, Lord. Would you stir our hearts, God? Would you stir our affections to stand in awe of you again?